Mike and I look early, so I'm thrilled. Well, <laughs> well done. It, you know, it, it's all it's all about the comparison. It's all about the comparison. So, um, the opening prayer is a little bit on the long side. Um, uh, I'll, I'll mention a little bit about you know what what this is and where it came from um, afterwards. We pray. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I thank you, O God, for the countless blessings you have showered on us today. On a Sunday, Jesus, our Savior, rose from the grave. On a Sunday, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles. So it is proper that on this day we call to mind our redemption through Jesus Christ and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, who was poured out on us abundantly in holy baptism. We thank you for your holy and pure word, which was or will be preached to us this day, as you have ordained for the salvation of our souls. We thank you for all the bodily and spiritual blessings received from your fatherly hand throughout our lives. We thank you because you have guided, led, preserved us from our youth, and shown us many favors in body and soul. Who could ever recount all your blessings? However, this day will not only this will be not only a day of thanksgiving but also a day of prayer. We beg you, O God our Father, grant us to spend this day in your fear. Keep us from temptations, vain thought keep us from temptations, vain thoughts and evil company. How we wish that every artery in us were a tongue and every drop of blood a voice to praise and glorify you, O blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that not a single hour would go by in which we do not show forth your praise. Seal the word that we have heard in our hearts. Grant that we may diligently ponder it. Let it govern our lives, that we may walk accordingly. As we have now grown to be a week older, Grant that we may increase in your knowledge, in love, and piety, and that we may grow in our inward self. We pray for the gift of your Holy Spirit. May he put us in mind of your word during this week and throughout our lives. May he guide, govern, and lead us. Bless our labor and employment and grant us to continue to live in your grace for the rest of our days and years until at last we reach heaven, where we may, with thanksgiving, keep the eternal Sabbath. This is the day the Lord has made. He calls the hours his own. Let heaven rejoice, let earth be glad, and praise around the throne. Amen. So th this is from a uh, prayer book that's called, uh, it's just called Stark's Prayer Book. Stark was a pastor in, uh, in Germany, and um, it... The original was written in, uh, shoot, I want to say it was in the 1600s, um, and, uh, and basically you have a movement in, in the Lutheran church where um, there was this confessional orthodox movement that became very heady, and then people said, well, no, we, sh we should feel things of the faith. And a new movement came in that's called pietism. And, uh, and, and so this Stark guy came to the church where uh, uh, 
a pastor who had been a key leader in that pietistic movement um, had been before him. He was a little bit more uh, of the orthodox type of mind frame, but definitely saw we, we're not just heads and we're not just hearts. We are whole selves. And, and I think that, that that's one of the things that's interesting to me about this prayer book. All of the prayers are long like this. Um, I love our little portals of prayer, you know, with a little devotion, and then there's like a one and a half sentence prayer at the end. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, because I, I think that that has a place in our lives, and I think sometimes when we're really busy, that sometimes, you know, something's better than nothing, right? And that something that's in the portals of prayer is, is really a good, high-quality something. But I also think that there's something to be said for taking the time to really delve deeply into our, our, our thoughts and our feelings and our prayers. And I, I, it's, it's one of the things that I appreciate about some of these prayers um, from the past because I, I think that sometimes they were better at this than we are, that, that we have a little bit of that, um, was it up, where the dog is like, squirrel! And I think that we have a, a bit of that in us, in our culture and in our time. Um, and uh, I think they had it too, but I think that because of the, the they did not have the same time issues that we have. Um, I'm not saying they weren't busy. I'm, I'm saying that, you know, they weren't kind of forced from idea to idea to idea, you know, through different media and the like, uh, like we are. And to be able to kind of sit down for a minute and, Look at somebody how look at how somebody else prays, but also to look at the things that they raise in their prayers. I think that that's helpful, and, and uh, I know that it you know some of these longer prayers have have gone. I wouldn't have thought to pray about that necessarily, you know. And so I think that 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 can be a big blessing for us. So Romans chapter seven. Um, I'm going to read seven through twelve. Uh, I hope to get through verse 7 and, you know, maybe 8, but uh, that might be, uh, verse 7 might be a bit much even. So, especially since it's, you know, when I get done with a service that goes along, I always go back through my mind, what did, what happened? Where did, where, where did I go off the rails? Um, and... Uh, and there, there are a couple of different points. Uh, I will try to tighten up for the late service. So if you're like, you know, oh, what did he do? Uh, but, but hopefully it was worth your time. It was. It was oh, good. good. Yeah. Do you want me to walk out of the room so that you could... She's sitting too close for you not to say it was good. I know. <laughs> no, we, I enjoyed it. Uh, well, so Romans 7, 7 through 12, I want to take the whole paragraph... Uh, you know, to get us started, but then we're going to dig into to verse 7. Paul writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. 
For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death in me, death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So it starts out with this question, is the law sin? I thought that was an interesting question. You know, why would you even ask, is the law sin? And uh, I'm just, I just kind of walked back through what Paul was writing. You know, you know, he talks about, you know, death frees us from sin. You know, in, in Romans 6, uh, in Romans 7 and already, he's talked about how death frees us from the law. You know, and so maybe there's an idea that, you know, well, if death frees us from sin and death frees us from the law, is the law therefore sin? You know, kind of tying those two ideas together. And uh, his, his answer is that, uh, that same answer that he gives over and over again, you know, we translate it certainly not, but it's, it's that no way. It's, it's a very emphatic uh, phrase uh, in the original. Um, and as I was doing a little bit of research about this, um, there's a commentary by uh, Martin Franzman. Uh, he wrote uh, uh, Thy Strong Word. We sang that recently, I think. Um, and uh, he, he writes this. Um, Franzman was a professor at Concordia Seminary where, where I went, but long before I was there. The law and sin are utterly disparate, and yet there is an uncanny close connection between the two. Paul came to know sin, to experience that as a powerful reality in his life when he was confronted by the law. So we kind of experience the law and sin together because I think, I think partly because we're not even aware of sin apart from the law. It's like we're oblivious. Have you ever been, that, have you ever been in a situation where you had something in your teeth? You had no idea, you know, and people are kind of, you know, maybe these things are a blessing. Um, they are in their way, but uh, um, when, when we when we think about how we uh, come to know our sin, it is most certainly through the law, and there is that 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 uncanny close connection in terms of how we experience our sin. Um, and, uh, and so, um, Paul asks the question then, is the law sin? And, and, you know, certainly not, no way. And part of this comes from, you know, wh what exactly does the law do? Well, it makes sin known. It makes it evident. Um, he says, for I would not have known covetousness if the law had not said, and, uh, that when it says, if it did not say, it's a, it's a form of a past tense verb that has a, a future continuing action to it. So the law said and continues to say, uh, do not covet. And I think it's interesting um, that, that Paul uses the ninth and the tenth commandment to display what the law does. 
you know, um, first of all, to covet. Not a word we use a lot, you know, in society. It's a, it's a, it's a churchy word. We're talking in code now, okay? Uh, so it's good for us to, to know what, what this word is, what, what it really comes down to. And uh, I, I, was, I was surprised when I was translating it that um, the, the word there has a sense of, of longing for, lusting for something. And I was like, well, I wonder how well that reflects the, uh, the actual Hebrew. So I went back you know, to, uh, to Exodus chapter 20 and I, I looked at the commandment there. And, and the word there also has that same sense of, of, of a desire, a longing for something, um, lusting for something. And it led me to ask myself the question, is it necessarily wrong to desire something? Well, I think it usually comes down to desiring something that really doesn't matter. Okay. And it's a sort of a waste of desire. Okay. But it's obsessive. It takes over all your thoughts. I gotta, I gotta have, I gotta have, I gotta have. Okay. Kind of thing. Well, it's something that doesn't belong to you, too. Right, okay, okay. Our whole commercial society is built on creating desire for things you don't have. And that actually, in an extreme, or even less extreme, uh, take on it is replacing God. That's where your desire is. Yeah. So, to just generally desire something? It's not wrong. I mean, it's what, what you do about it or how it manifests, how that desire manifests itself. How much you think about it. Yeah. And what you do to get it. <clears throat> okay, yeah. It's certainly possible to covet someone else's faith. Yeah. Of course, faith is freely available. You don't have to take it away from them to have it yourself. Right, right. And moreover, faith is something that is worth coveting. Yes. It is worth something desiring, as the pants the heart, and all of those sort of things. So there are, you know, in the commandment, they, they, they outline specific things that it, you should not covet, but still leave it like there's you know, and many more is sort of implied. Right. And yet there are things which we should desire and lust after. Yeah. Uh, there are some things, for instance, that it is considered quite proper to, 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 to uh, desire when you're married and improper when you're not married. Right. So there's a whole lot of shades to this whole thing. Yeah, it, you know, so... I think one of the reasons I want to ask this question is uh, uh, I, I, I think that there is a, uh, well, you know, we're, we're not Buddhists. Our, our, our goal is not to get rid of desire. I think desire can be good and it can be healthy. You know, so it's not to get rid of all of our earthly attachments. You know, that desire is actually something that can be very good and it, it can lead to, to good places. But like all good gifts, you know, in our sinful nature, we're able to take this and twist it and, and misuse it. You know, and, and so um, 
when he's talking about the ninth and commandment here, ninth and tenth commandments as we number them, um, you know, just let me, let me read these for you really quick here. The ninth commandment: You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I think that the key in there is neighbor. You know, I, I, I think that there's also something valuable in um, what, what was being said about always wanting more. There's a passage in the scriptures that says, godliness with contentment is great gain, right? And uh, so the idea of being content, um, my uh, confirmation uh, verse is Hebrews 13, 5, be content with such things as ye have, for God has promised I will never leave thee or forsake thee. That idea of being content is a, is, is a big idea. It, it's, you know, basically trusting God to give you the things that, that you, you need for your body and for your life. And yet, um, th this idea of wanting something um, it can be good, but it can also become uh, disordered. You know, is it, this focus on wanting something that somebody else has? So is, it, is there an element of stealing in that versus I want a new car? You know, or yeah. is, is it really the focus about I'm, I'm going to take what you have versus wanting something that doesn't belong to anybody? Well, in James, it says that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So the desire then can be a catalyst of sorts that leads into the other actions. And James continues, he says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Um, so it's, it's really learning to desire what, what God would have, what God would bless us with. <coughs> yeah. It, it's a very internal sort of thing. Yeah. You might come with someone's money and then therefore rob them. Well, the robbery is a separate thing. It, it's, it's, I think, one of the, a lesson in humility when we talk about needing God's help to overcome our own nature, that to actually set it out as a goal to say, I'm going to just stop this coveting. I'm going to, you know, it's like the sort of thing where Luther would confess for an hour or two and then come back and say, oh, I just had an evil thought. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's so ingrained into our nature and our instincts yeah. that it's, it, it it's hopeless, I think, to say, no, I'm going to get rid of coveting. Yeah. It just isn't going to happen. You can ask God's forgiveness. You can pick out specifics and ask for God to help you want them less. But overall, you're, you're <laughs> it's not going to just go away. And I think that's the point, that it is hopeless. Lisa? I was just going to say somewhat the same thing, that isn't that kind of the point, though, that it makes us aware of our sin, makes us aware of our covetousness, and we can take it to God continually. It doesn't mean it's ever going to go away, but we're aware of it, and we're praying about it, and confessing it, and that's probably the, one of the important parts of it. 
shows us why we needed Jesus to come. You know, if, if the law is the curb and the mirror and all of that, it should point us to the cross. Yeah. Yeah? I always say that to not come with any of his children. I never had a biological child, but I adopted one. Mm. Yeah, and that is that can be a real heartache, can't it? And uh, it's not the kind of thing that just you know goes away. Um, you know, there there is uh, um, you know, an adoption is a beautiful way to uh, to satisfy that to some degree, and to love somebody, um, and to raise them and to give yourself to them. That that's a beautiful and and, and a wonderful thing. Um, but the desire. Is it wrong to desire to have children? No, I think it's pretty natural. You know, and then what happens then after that? You know, um, I've been chewing a lot on Psalm 13 recently, just running into you know, people who are having difficulties. Um, and Psalm 13 starts with, how long will you forget me, Lord? How long will you forget me? And I, th I think that, you know, sometimes, you know, when we have desires like this, we feel like, you know, God has forgotten us. And I think that coveting can be, uh, it can go to a point where it shows, you know, where it becomes lack of trust, lack of faith. Coveting, uh, I think, is also really closely connected to the first commandment. You know, you shall have no other gods. You know, and it, it, it deals explicitly with an attitude that's in our heart. And those are things that are hard to change. You know, think of, um, think of David's prayer after he was caught in sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51. He says, create in me a clean heart. Not, I'm scrubbing it, but God created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Take it, shape it, transform it. Make it something different. Um, and, and I see these coming very close together. When I, when I look at the commandments, you know, starting with you shall have no other gods, I, I kind of see them making a little bit of a loop in that the ninth and 10th, you know, bring us so close back to that, that first commandment. Um, because there's a temptation in coveting to not trust God for every blessing or to not turn to him in every trouble. Um, and so then we, we desire what our neighbors have because it's always greener on the, uh, on the other side of the fence. That's, that's in the Bible somewhere, right? No, it's not. But the principle, the idea is there. <laughs> And um, I think the, the commandments, like the Ten Commandments, they always like, remind us to overcome this temptation. They also like tell us to recognize that these are these evil desires or whatever the covert is, it's basically a, one form of temptation and we need to overcome that. And we need to keep that in mind that we have to trust in God for what he has blessed us. In that way, in that way we can be uh, um, like realize that how blessed we are one of the way that um, which I follow in my life I mean uh, I follow that in my daily task in my daily routine like after finishing the after finishing the everyday work when when it's time for me to go to bed and give my body and soul and my mind to rest 
uh, I we uh, we we start we start taking notes that what are the facts or what are the um, yeah what are the facts we are thankful for today what has what has God done in my life today that we are grateful for what are the good things has God done in my life that I think that makes my day a productive day or a successful day and then we start listing all those points and then we realize that oh my gosh God has blessed me in this in such such and such way so it's more it's more like um, trusting in God and um, realize that I mean not realize trusting in God and um, humble and um, I can't find the right word or anyways trusting in God and realize that he has blessed us uh, by what we have in a very um, in, in, in in various ways yeah, so, so gratitude, in, in a sense, is the opposite of covetousness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I always want to be really careful, you know, when we, when we start talking about what, how does the law work in us. I think that one of the things that's really important about coveting is that this is something that's really difficult for us to just get rid of. Okay. I think gratitude is something that pushes back against us. Yeah. You know, and, and it uh, allows us to see a broader picture of how we've been blessed, which may help us to be less covetous, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and to you know, rejoice in what, what God has done for us. You know, those are good, good things. Uh, but I think that the temptation to, to want more, it, it's something that it, it, it hangs heavy on us. It, you know, it, 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 it lingers. Does that make sense? Yes. You know, so I do think that gratitude and, and prayers of thanksgiving can be very helpful to, you know, orient our hearts in the right direction. Yeah. But our hearts are always going to be pulled back to those sinful desires too. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that and turning to the Lord for forgiveness, you know, is, is essential. You know, and what Paul is saying that if the law had not said it, I would not know it. You know, and, and so... There is a gift there in that, you know, if you don't know you're sick and you don't get treated, is it, you know, are you any less sick? No. Right. You know, and, and that's kind of how this works. It, it, it's like this is, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's a deadly condition that's on the inside that you might not even, that, that you're not even aware of, and then you know, through the law, God is saying that you have a sickness that's unto death. But I've provided the cure in Christ. But first, you've got to know you're sick. You know, so that you, you can can turn and, and you know, in, in the forgiveness that Jesus has given. It's, there's a, a number of characters in the New Testament, Levites and Pharisees and such, who seem very proud of their adherence to the law. Yes. That they have scrupulously obeyed all the commandments. So how do they handle this one? Do they translate it to from internal to external to say, oh, I wanted to, but I didn't do it, and so therefore I am righteous? Is it self-deception? I've just never felt anything like that. I 
could push it away. The heart I've of man. I've never heard any of them confronted about that. Yeah, but I'd love to ask a few questions. Yeah, the heart of man is deceitful above all things, right? Yeah. And I think that I think that we are often self-deceived about how how well we're doing. You know, and I I would be willing to bet that in that culture, that in large part they were self-deceived. Mm -hmm. You know, and self-righteousness is a powerful, powerful thing. <laughs> yeah. And it, it it can really cause us to overlook our own flaws. Yeah. Um, this passage from Jeremiah chapter 17, it, it, it is, I, I both love and hate Jeremiah sometimes. Um, Jeremiah is so blunt you know, in the way that he talks about the human condition. You know, and sometimes it's like being beaten with a rod when you you know you know look through his book and you know and the prophecies that God gives there uh, there there is just it's like there's no quarter it's just left right and center he's beating away at, at the sinfulness of uh, you know us as the readers um, and this is another one of those passages where he just really you know strikes a strong blow in, in terms of um, where do we put our trust? You know, what is the the the, uh, the status of our heart? And, and he writes this: Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like a partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him. And at the end of his, at, the, at his end, he will be a fool. A glorious throne Set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the, shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. All of this is just placing our lives in relationship to who is God and what is God and what is the desire of, of our hearts and of our lives. Um, and again, I forgot that I was quoting this passage earlier, but uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You know, and so looking at that in relationship to the desires of the heart and where, where God is and, and, and what are the things of the earth that we want and all of those types of things, you know, the law speaks to that. 
you know, and that's really where it ends in you know, verses 12 and 13 is who is God? And do we trust him? You know, you know, or do we forsake his promises and, and are therefore put to shame? So we do well to examine the desires of our hearts. You know, a little bit of uh, uh, that great uh, philosopher Socrates. <laughs> yeah, know thyself, right? You know, it, it, to to really be aware of what's going on in here. Um, frankly, this is this is why we have that moment of silence before confession and absolution. You know, I. Uh, when I when I announce that we're going to have that moment of silence, I'm always a little bit torn because that that silence is uncomfortable sometimes for people, and so it's like how, how long how long should that silence be? You know, and I'm like, well, maybe I should be sitting here, and when 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 I'm okay, when I've got all the things I need to think about, then we can go on. And I'm like, no, we don't have time for that. <laughs> I was going to say, it's not long enough for me. <laughs> um, but I do think that there's something important about that moment of silence and that recognition to put ourselves before the Lord and to recognize these things about ourselves. You know, that, that's why we have that verse in the liturgy, you know, because God's word always speaks to us and it, it, the law condemns our sin where uh, we say... Um, Oh, I'm blanking on it. Uh, if we if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You know, th that's a paraphrase from John chapter one. And then we respond as a congregation with hope, right? But God is faithful and just, and He will forgive our sins. You know, so you have the two things going on there. That there's this recognition. Uh, that I am a sinful person, but then because of that, I need to place my hope in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Um, if you go back in the history of the church, um, I don't know if any of you ever experienced this or if you know your parents or grandparents ever talked about this. It used to be that if you were going to commune on Sunday, you had to talk to the pastor beforehand. You know, Kind of, yeah. You know, um, I, I have heard of, uh, um, I've heard it done both ways, where you know, the person announces that they want to have communion, and the pastor will be in the office. Um, you know, at these times, you stop by, talk with him, and it was an opportunity to to talk about what do you believe that you're getting here, but there's also kind of that opportunity for private confession and absolution. And then I've also heard about times where uh, the pastor would go to the people who uh, um, had announced that they were going to, to be there, you know, and, and have conversations with them in, in their homes. You know, there, there's something good about that, but there's also something very difficult about that. I went to a Roman Catholic uh, the 
a retreat house up in like Painesville or something for a weekend, <coughs> and it was it was Roman Catholic, but but everybody that went there had they had a bunch of priests there that you could sit and talk to, and I said, well, you know, I've never done this, I'm Lutheran, <laughs> but there was something kind of freeing about yeah. t talking one on one with someone. Yes. Um, and a, a lot of times people don't realize that Lutherans do private confession and absolution. We don't usually set aside times to do that. We tend to do it by appointment, and it's not a requirement. Um, but it, it's, it, it's a powerful experience. Um, and this is also part of the reason that uh, in my vows... Uh, it is to never divulge the sins of those who confess. You know, um, well, yeah. oh, I'm a sinner, you know, in church. That's not anything to divulge. You know, you all just said it together, big deal. It's when there's something that's actually bothering your conscience and, and you sit down and, and... I haven't done that a lot in my career. But I've been on both sides of that, and it's powerful. And if it's something that you desire, let me know. Yeah? I think verse 11 could be interpreted a different way. Like the parchments that gathers and brood that she did not hatch. Well, I think it's wonderful that sometimes people be foster parents rather than, or adoptive parents rather than put these children in an orphanage. Yeah, but this isn't actually talking about adoption. <laughs> you know, this is this is talking about people who gather things that are not no, their own. Riches. I, I, yeah, I you know, know, so this this isn't talking about you know, you know, like you adopting your your child, you know, and raising him, and uh, you know, that that's a that's a whole different situation. But partridges aren't people either. You know, so having raised your children that you adopted. You know, if everything is healthy and everything's good, they love you and they keep coming back to you and, 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 and all of those things. But when a partridge is um, grown, they, boom, 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 off they go. You know, and, and uh, you know, so it's, 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 it's talking about something different. So don't let that bother you. Um, there's a... Uh, a section here that's that's in italics, and I'm going to leave that for you. And I encourage you to read this. Um, this is from a document that's called the Small Called Articles. Um, some of you may know that uh, as a confessional church, we have documents that's, that 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 say this is what we believe, and the Small Called Articles are one of those. They're kind of a unique one in the sense that. Uh, Basically, the Lutheran princes came to Luther and said, you know, hey, uh, you're not exactly healthy. W would you write down what it is that, that you believe, teach, and confess? And th th this is it. That's that document. Um, and uh, I, I edited uh, you know, some of it out because there are some points where he rails against the Catholic Church and it's just not helpful for our, our context or for our conversation. You know, so you you know, if you see an ellipsis in it, that's what that is. Um, but uh, 
Um, yeah, and if you are to if you were to choose to read it, uh, it is the kind of thing that um, Luther is not healthy when he writes this, and he's really rather ornery. Um, it's 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 interesting, you know. We come to these old documents like this, and we kind of expect people to be level, and uh, that's just not reality. You know, we, sometimes we write things in good moments, and sometimes we say things in in, in bad moments, and uh, you know, and sometimes uh, we speak the truth, but not in the kindest way. And uh, there, there's definitely an element of that uh, to the small called articles. So, um, but I, I do encourage you to read it. So, um, one of the one of the things I want to wrap up on this point, um, and uh, it's this question about how do we look at the law. Uh, Amy, you mentioned that the, the three functions of the law are the three uses of the law. I like to call them functions because uh, when we say the uses of the law. Sometimes I think it gives the impression that we're the ones using it, but it's actually God, and you know, and it's hard baked into what He's done with them. So I like to call it the functions of the law. It's part of how He designed them, and you mentioned that curb, mirror, and guide. But the question that I really want to focus you on is that that next one: Do we cling to the idea that somehow, in some way, we can keep the law? And I think that where Paul is leading us in Romans chapter 7 is to despair of that idea. That there's some way that we can keep the law in a way that's going to satisfy God. And that what we actually need is not what we do, but what Jesus has done. You know, that it's all about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And, and him delivering that um, to us. And uh, I guess I lied earlier. Uh, I would put this last question before you too. Um, do we turn the law into the focus of our faith? That the law becomes, this is what Christianity is about. I think in practice we do. Maybe not all the time. But I think in practice, you know, what, what do people look for? You know, that it's often about what you do. You know, that person's not a very good Christian because they X, Y, or Z. And I think that that's something that, that um, we need to be cautious of. So, because it's all about what Jesus has done. You all right. have to remember they're a child of God. Yeah? Yes. When people are doing things you don't think are very godly. Yeah, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you hold on to Jesus for your hope and forgiveness. And uh, sometimes uh, it's hard to see the faith in the actions and God looks at the heart. And yet, by their deeds you shall know them. Right? And so there's a tension there. Isn't that essentially almost though um, the puritanical roots though of our country? Yes. You're going to live your life in such a way that you are going to show everybody that you're righteous and yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it's kind of been ingrained in our culture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and it, I think it continues in our culture, and it's it's even become part of the uh, the secular part of our life. That you know, it's it's about you know the outward. So. So it's become a millstone. Yeah. Your neck. Yeah. To take that biblical. Yeah. Yeah. All right, gang. We got to get to church. So God's blessings and thank you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>